This morning we read in Psalm 104, beginning in verse 1. Please read with me. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. And then verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Tucked deep away in the book of Genesis is a relatively short and relatively obscure story about the depths of human nature. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. We're told that in those days, humanity just had one language. And people from all over migrated to the plains of Babylon and they built a great city and an even greater tower. And God looking down and seeing all that humanity had made, scattered people all over the world, and he confused our language so that we could not understand one another. You you might be asking yourself this morning, why would God do that? Why would God look down on a great city that man had made and enact justice, the kind of which would mean that we now, even to this day, don't understand one another's languages all over the world. It wasn't because they built a city. It was because of their motivation for building the city. Genesis 11 tells us this, that the people said, come and let us build ourselves a city and a great tower and let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. That's our story, isn't it? That's really what we live for, isn't it? To make a name for ourselves. We want to be well-liked. We want people to look at us, to think of us as beautiful, honorable, successful. We want renown. In a word, we want glory. And ever since the Tower of Babel, The human heart has had an insatiable appetite for glory. Constantinople, Constantine, Charlemagne, Napoleon, all emperors seeking an empire, seeking expansion, all for glory. So much time, energy, money, resources, so much sacrifice given by us all in the name of sports. Why? For the glory of a championship. The glory of setting a record. Our every hour of almost every day, all of our training, 
all of our education, all of our work, all for the glory of success. The problem with seeking after this kind of glory is that it does not last. And we are left hungry more and more, unsatisfied for glory. Empires fall. Teams lose. Records are broken. Jobs are lost. The economy falters. As the ancient saying goes, sick transit gloria mundi. Thus passes the glory of the world. And we know this, don't we? We know this. Glory fades. It does not last. You see, our problem with glory this morning is not that we search for it. Our problem is not that we are looking everywhere and in every place in people and even in ourselves for glory. It's that we are searching in all of the wrong places. In fact, you were made for glory. That's why you crave it. You see, our problem is that our desire for glory has been completely distorted and we are not satisfied. This morning, I want you to know that the only glory that will ever satisfy your soul is the glory of God. You were not created for your own glory. You were created for the glory of God. And this morning, very briefly, I want you to see that we find his glory in three places. Three places in Psalm 104. The first place that we find his enduring glory is this. We see it in creation. We find his enduring glory in creation. Second, that we find his enduring glory in redemption. And third, lastly, we find enduring glory in rejoicing. You have been created not to live for your own glory, but for the enduring glory of God. And the first place that we find this glory is in creation. I want you to look with me. Go ahead and grab a Bible out of the pew. We're going to be all over this psalm this morning. In verse 1, this is how Psalm 104 begins. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Trying to describe the glory of God is kind of like trying to describe a sunset to someone who's never seen the sky. It's that sense that we get when we see the sun begin to dip down past the horizon and suddenly the sky is illuminated with brilliant colors, purple and pink and yellow and orange. And as we sit there and we look at it, we are silenced. What more could we say than just mutter, it's beautiful. You see, the glory of God is kind of like that. It's not really one of his attributes. In fact, I would say the glory of God is the sum total of all of his attributes. And it's not just that the glory of God is his attributes. It's that God's glory is the fact that we find all of his character, all of his attributes, all of his work beautiful. That we would look at all that he has done and say it is good. And so it's no wonder that the psalmist begins 
for the glory of God and creation. Look with me, what does he say? He says in verse one, you are clothed with splendor and majesty, with beauty. You cover yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. It's the glory of God. In verse five, he says this, he set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. (laughs) The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place you appointed for them. It's the glory of God, isn't it? A thunderstorm in Texas, there's nothing quite like it. The power, the majesty, it's the glory of God. We see his glory all over creation. He is the creator. Every rock, every tree, every flower, every person, every living thing, God made with his own hand. And by his craftsmanship, by his handiwork, we look upon it and say, God, you are glorious. You are overwhelmingly beautiful, all that you have made. When I was growing up, my family, we took summer trips in a van all over the United States, just about every national park. Now, I must tell you, as a teenager, I didn't appreciate it very much, especially when you're approaching week three with your family and you just want to get out. But I'm, to this day, I'm so thankful because I've seen, I've seen it all, at least in the United States, Guadalupe, Big Bend, Zion, Bryce Canyon, the Grand King, the Great Smoky Mountains, Yellowstone, Yosemite. When you stand in the center of Yosemite Valley and you look up and you look at the glory of Half Dome, the grandeur of El Capitan, the majesty of Bridavel Falls, all right there in one valley, you're filled with awe. I think, the glory of God. You see, God made the earth. Not only did he make it, but he made it beautiful. Have you ever thought about that? Why would he do that? Why not just make it to where it works? Why not just engineer it so that everything works properly? No, he didn't just make it to where it works. He made it beautiful. And all of creation gives glory to God. Or consider the complexity the vastness, the precision of our universe. And in 1915, Albert Einstein developed his theory of general relativity. And when he did, much to his own surprise, he discovered mathematically that there had to have been a beginning. The very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Confession of faith this morning, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. This is his glory. Or another discovery. In the 1860s, that was later developed by a pair named Watson and Crick. A double helix. DNA. Every living thing on this planet with such precision building blocks from such genetic wiring, all of this diversity 
How could it be like that? It's the glory of God. Every living thing, everything that he has made, all giving glory and praise to God as our creator. And as long as there have been people, we have tried to explain the world around us in some other way than God. Why? Because ever since the Tower of Babel, you and I and all people have had an insatiable appetite for our glory. And so we have searched and searched, trying to explain the world around us from some other explanation, some theory. Surely God couldn't have made all of this. Why? Because we want the glory. What I want you to see this morning is this is not just doubt. This is idolatry. This is what Paul says in Romans 1. He says God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And we did not glorify God, but we exchanged his glory for created things. When I was in college, I was a pre-med student my freshman year. And I took a class called Genes, Ecology, and Evolution. Not blue genes, but genes, right? Genes, your genetic makeup. And I had an evolutionary biologist as a professor who happened to be intellectually honest. And the first day of class, he admitted that scientifically we have no proof for evolution across species. Zero. No scientific evidence at all. And this is what he said. Sometimes you have to have a little faith to explain the world around you. I want you to know this morning that he's right. We do not place our faith in Darwinism. We do not place our faith in some random genetic mutation or natural selection. Our faith is in our God, the creator of heaven and earth, who not only has made all things, but is now intimately and sovereignly sustaining all things all for his glory and all for our good. In creation, we find his enduring glory. Second, we find enduring glory in redemption. You cannot contemplate the glory of God for very long without being confronted with your own depravity. Then in other words, you can't fathom how beautiful, how majestic, how perfect he is without recognizing that you are not. You are not. And this is why we are trying so desperately to find glory in so many things. Because we cannot bear our own ingloriousness. We hate it. So we strive and we try as hard as we can to seek the glory of false redeemers and ourselves vicariously through others. There is only one glory and only one Redeemer who has truly rescued us from our sin. Verse 35 of Psalm 104, the very last verse. It seems kind of like a strange way to end a psalm about glory. This is what it says. It says, let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Why would he end that way? Because his glory consumes all things. And in his glory, we are so clearly not glorious. 
This is what Paul said in Romans chapter 3 when he said, all have sinned and they have fallen short of the glory of God. But this morning we also recognize that it's not just we ourselves who've fallen short of his glory, but all of creation since the fall has been subjected to futility. Not only are we aware as we consider his glory just how fallen and broken we are, but we look at our world around us and we see nothing but brokenness and disease and suffering and sickness and in death. So what do we do? Isaiah, recognizing his own depravity before the glory of the Lord, in Isaiah 6, he said this. He said that he saw the foundations and the thresholds shook at the voice of God. And the house of God was filled with smoke. And he said, woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. Standing in the presence of God's glory, Isaiah knew just how desperate he was for redemption. And so for us this morning, as the glory of God exposes us with just how inglorious we truly are, we are like Isaiah, desperate, dependent, and needy. All we can say is, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. But the glory of God in our redemption is this, that though we rejected God, he has not rejected us. And what is more, though we every day try to rob God of his glory, he has freely given it to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who laid his glory down, as Chad said, who laid it down at the cross, who traded in his glory so that you and I could be made glorious. There Isaiah was exposed in all of his sin. And he says this, that one of the angels flew to him and took in his hand a burning coal and touched it to his lips and said this, behold, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. The God who created all things is redeeming all things. And he so loved you that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die and to rise again, that your sin would be atoned for, that your guilt would be taken away, that you would have life and have it everlasting. This is the glory of our Redeemer. There's nothing more glorious than that. Nothing more glorious than even the cross. What was a symbol of shame is now a symbol of glory, of beauty, of majesty. Just before we went to the cross, Jesus prayed this in the high priestly prayer. John 17, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. As you search and search for glory in all of these wrong places, I wonder this morning, I ask you, do you know the glory of God and your Redeemer, Jesus Christ? The one who wipes away every tear from every eye. The one who is making all things new. 
The last place this morning that we find the glory of God is this. That ultimately we find glory in rejoicing. The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with this question. What is the chief end of man? In other words, what's the sum total? What's the purpose of human existence? And the answer is this, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now what's so profound about this answer is that the Westminster Vines not only knew that really the purpose of all of life is to glorify God, but they also knew that there is a deep connection between giving God glory and enjoying him. That we glorify God by rejoicing. And the Psalms are full of this kind of language, that we worship, we glorify God in our rejoicing in him. Psalm 32 says this, be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Psalm 40, verse 16, rejoice and be glad. Psalm 64, verse 10, let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord. Psalm 96, 11, let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. You see, when you and I rejoice in God, we are declaring that in all things and in all circumstances, his works are good. That he is beautiful, that he is glorious, We're proclaiming along with the people of God as they left Egypt. Who is like you, O Lord? Who is among you like the gods? This is why we do this every single Sunday. Why we as a church gather. Why we meet together. Why we sing songs. Why we speak the truth to one another. Why we listen to a sermon. This is why we worship. We come together to rejoice to rejoice in the Lord, to declare that he is glorious in all things, in creation and redemption. There is no glory quite like the glory of God's people rejoicing together, just like we're doing this morning. At least no glory except for one. There is an even greater glory still to be found. This morning as we end, I want you to know that the greatest glory that the world has ever known is not just that we rejoice in God. It's that God rejoices in you. This is what the psalmist says in verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in all his works. You see, it's not just us that look at all his works and say all his works are good, but God, looking at all he has made, when he made heaven and earth, when he said this, he said, it is good. When he was hung upon a cross and purchased for us our salvation, he said it is finished. And now his great song of rejoicing continues even now. He is singing over you. This is our call to worship this morning from the book of Zephaniah. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exult over you with loud singing. And so as we sing this last hymn together, I want you to picture this truth deep within your souls. That as we sing to him, as we rejoice in him, God is singing over you. He's rejoicing over you because he is your creator 
And you've been fearfully and wonderfully made. Because he is your redeemer and he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you and to rise again. And he is now the great rejoicer, joining with all of heaven, with all the earth, with every angel, every saint that has gone before us, and we ourselves as we sing, may we glory in the reality that he rejoices over us. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, our redeemer. We thank you that you have made all things, that you have created all things. And Father, we thank you that you are now graciously singing over us in every trial, in every temptation, in every joy, and in every sorrow. Father, we pray that you would meet us here, that as we sing, as we rejoice in you, as we give you glory, that your glory would be so overwhelming to us. We ask in the strong name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.